So turn in your Bibles with me this morning to uh, three passages. We're going to continue in our Harmony of the Gospels. We've got three parallel accounts here, one in Luke 18, one in Mark 10, and the other in Matthew 20. I want to read them in that order, starting with Luke 18, verses 31 through 34. Luke 18, verses 31 through 34. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. And he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of the statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. Turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. Mark 10, verses 32 through 45. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Matthew chapter 20. We'll read this parallel to that scripture. Matthew 20, verses 17 through 28. Matthew 20, verses 17 through 28. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, 
You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to Himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the marvelous gift of Your Son given unto us. We're thankful for the salvation that He has accomplished. And we're thankful for the life that He led. We recognize how far short we fall of the life You call us to and therefore our need for a Savior. We're also thankful that Your grace which forgives us of sin is also working in us, empowering us in present obedience. And so we ask, Lord, today that You would root out any wrongful thoughts we have about this life and about the way in which we live our lives, that You would replace it with biblical truth and then instill in us a desire to, out of love, obey You. Lord, we do love You and we're thankful for this time together. We ask Your blessings on it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this passage before me, before us this morning reminds me that the struggles that we encounter today are really not all that much different from the experiences of those experienced in the days of Jesus. The pride and arrogance and egoism of our own day is not a historical oddity. It has been man's problem ever since the fall. And it's precisely this sort of attitude that has led to the collapse of many a great nation and kingdom. As the old adage goes, pride goeth before a fall. MacArthur says it so well. No society can survive the self-destructiveness of pride run rampant. Because every society depends for its preservation and success on the mutually supportive and harmonious relationships among its people when a significant number of them become committed only to themselves and to their own interests, with little regard to their families and friends and neighbors and fellow citizens, society disintegrates. As self becomes stronger, relationships become weaker. As self-rights reign supreme, the interpersonal bonds that hold society together are severed. I think it's the reality of these statements that meant that the United States got started in such a great way and why we're seeing much of its decline today. Now, it's not all that surprising that people in general should have a sinful preoccupation with themselves. In other words, that people be selfish. That's not all that surprising. For that matter, we're not even all that thrown off when we hear that that's a continued struggle even among Christians, even among those who've been saved by Jesus Christ who have been granted eyes to see that life is to be lived for the glory of God and Him alone and the enjoyment of Him. Though we still understand that we struggle with our selfish flesh in the present, those things aren't all that surprising. 
What is exceedingly disappointing and grieving, though, is that much of the church today has fallen into patterns of ministry that try to encourage what we should be in an all-out war against. The self-esteem figures so prominently, that figures so prominently in pop psychology and business seminars is tragic, but we can understand it. That's how people who don't have Jesus might try to get along in this life, however misguided it is. But when it takes center stage in the life of the church, it's deplorable. You see, our problem is not that we need to esteem ourselves greater. That's not our problem. Our problem is not one of self-esteem, that we don't esteem ourselves greatly enough. We need to esteem ourselves rightly. We need to think about ourselves rightly. But our problem is not a lack of self-concern. The esteem that we need to grow in and develop is that for God. We suffer not from a lack of self-esteem, but a lack of God-esteem. We don't think highly enough about God. We suffer from a lack of thinking about Him as we ought We've not thought about and considered the greatness of God as we should. A.W. Tozer famously said that the most important thing about a man is what comes into his mind when he thinks about God. The most important thing about you is what you think of when you think about God. You see, we suffer from a lack of thoughts about God. And it's a mismanagement, a gross mismanagement of our time to spend time and energy and resources teaching people how to think better about themselves. It's misdirected. It's a misappropriation of time and resources. Instead, we ought to spend our days learning and teaching how to think better about God, not better about ourselves. We must think much about Him, and we need to think rightly about Him. Note that, much about Him and rightly about Him. Both quality and quantity is important. This is important in any relationship. I'm sure the relationship that I have with my wife would degenerate if I hardly ever thought about her. I'd have right thoughts, but hardly ever thought about her. That wouldn't be much of a relationship. Nor would it be much of a relationship if I thought about her all the time, but I also thought about wrong things about her. Both of those would lead to a very shallow and superficial relationship, if any at all. What we need is to think deeply and rightly and ongoingly about the Lord. Our relationship with Him will grow and flourish as we think right things about Him in an ongoing fashion. And this in turn, my friends, will give us a proper view of ourselves within this world and make us tremendously grateful for the gifts that God has given. You see, what we really need is to return to the great hymns and choruses of our faith. For example, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Seems like that hymnist is kind of lacking some self-esteem, doesn't it? I heard an old, old story how a Savior came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning, of his precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sins and won the victory. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. God saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. How deep the Father's love for us. 
how vast beyond all measure, that He would give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. Picking up on a common theme there, what is the hymnist's appraisal of man's condition? That he's a worm? That he's a wretch? And in light of that, these hymns, while seeming to be so anti-man, are so full of God-centeredness and thinking of the glories that are to be had with Him. Timothy Tennant writes a blog and he was commenting on this reality, that phrase, that saved a wretch like me. I don't know if you know this, but in a lot of modern hymn books, they're changing those words because it doesn't fit with modern ideas about self-esteem. So, saving a wretch like me has now been changed to to save one just like me. And while it's taken 200 years for them to make those kinds of adjustments to John Newton's classic Amazing Grace, it's only taken them a few years to take um, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, written by Stuart Townsend, and recast that in similar ways. But you see, in our efforts to make much of ourselves, we fail to see ourselves rightly, and we fail to consider God's glory in His position. What we really need, what man really needs, is to be stripped and laid low, and then allow the Lord to lift us up. If we resist that and we exalt ourselves, then the Lord will ultimately humble us and bring us low. So instead of endeavoring to exalt ourselves, we should live to advance God's agenda, not our own. Our ambition should be to be pleasing to God, not to fulfill our own happiness. We can be guaranteed that we're going to encounter trials and difficulties and much suffering in this life. But there is a happy ending which far exceeds all estimates and dreams. It's way better than any fairy tale you've ever heard about. And the difference from those is that it's true. God is making a marvelous tapestry. He's weaving such a diverse set of circumstances and situations together into a marvelous whole. He can take the darkest, hardest, most evil plot and work it for good. And this is seen most notably in what He did through His Son, Jesus Christ. In the end, we cannot escape that we all have an ambition. We all are driving towards something. And that ambition will be birthed out of what we esteem what we think of highly, what we think about often, what we think about on an ongoing basis. And what we think about will translate into what we want and what we desire and what we set as our ambition. We all esteem something or someone as great, and we all spend our lives in pursuit of that thing that we consider to be great, that thing that we love. It's not a matter of whether or not we worship. It's not a matter of whether or not we esteem things. We all esteem things. It's just a matter of whether or not we esteem that which is worth our esteem. It's only a matter of whether or not we are spending our life on that which is worth spending our lives on. And there are really just two sorts. We can boil down all ambition, all esteem to two things. There's either selfish ambition or selfless ambition. Those are the two. It's either selfish ambition or selfless ambition. And in a sermon entitled Redirecting Ambition, I want to look at those two things. First, the tragedy of selfish ambition. We need to mourn this together. The tragedy of selfish ambition. We're going to jump kind of into the middle of the passage here to get at this. 
three things I want you to note about selfish ambition. The first is the ignorance of selfish ambition. The ignorance of selfish ambition. James 3.16 tells us, Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. So again, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. The ignorance of selfish ambition. So Jesus has just gotten done talking about the wondrous glories of the consummation of history and rewards that are going to be distributed in the new heavens and new earth. And he brings the disciples back now to their present circumstances in order to guard them from believing that the end was right here. There was going to be a time in between the present and that glorious future. In between that, there was going to be an exceedingly dark moment. A meeting with rejection and betrayal and insults and scourging and death. But Jesus says this was all foretold by the prophets. This moment is coming and it's really quickly approaching on the horizon of Jesus' ministry and where we are in the gospel accounts. Jesus would soon be condemned and crucified. And he wants to prepare his disciples for this reality. And not only the reality of his rejection and the insults and the scourgings and the crucifixion and his death, but also the reality that three days later he would rise again from the dead. Jesus would be exalted and then given the name above every name. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. However, that blessed day, that glorious coronation would transpire only after a horrifying crucifixion. Jesus was the Messiah King. And He would rightly wear the crown. And He would sit on His throne. But it wouldn't happen apart from the cross. He would not get the crown apart from the cross and laying down His own life. You see, those mysterious words that he used in the previous context that we looked at last time, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, which served as bookends to Jesus' parable about the laborers in the vineyard, receives even more filling in here as Jesus explains his own mission. Think about it. He just said, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. It's a description of Jesus' own ministry. He who was first would humble himself to the point of being last. He would come down to the lowest point, the greatest humility, in order to save the least, even the chief of sinners, in order to free them and to grant them life, and to then bring them up with Him, to reign with Him, who was then raised to first again. Jesus here in this account, is leading the way to Jerusalem. The picture is that Jesus is out in front of His disciples, marching forward towards Jerusalem. He's willingly leading His disciples in humble submission to God the Father's will, up the path to suffering and then glory. He's leading them up this path. They're on a death march. Jesus is on His death march to Jerusalem. He knows what is in front of Him, but He walks forward with purpose and resilience while those around Him are bewildered and fearful. But Jesus knows that everything is going to transpire according to the predetermined plan of His Father. So as they're traveling towards Jerusalem, we're told that the disciples and those surrounding them, there's a flood of emotions going on. There might have been a few there that had a smattering of excitement and anticipation. I mean, here is the Messiah, and He's traveling up to Jerusalem. Perhaps now would be the point in which He silenced all the naysayers. Perhaps now he would make this journey into Jerusalem and everything would be made right. Well, 
Jesus would very soon set up his kingdom, and he would one day remove all naysayers and deal with all rebels. But the present called for a different, but no less significant, history-shaping event. This journey into Jerusalem would be different from all other visits, because this time Jesus would deliver himself over to the Jewish chief priests and scribes. The story would seemingly take an unexpected turn, for the king would be subjected to condemnation and crucifixion. But there's no way that you could say that these events were unannounced. Jesus told his disciples repeatedly that this was on the horizon. He knew that he had come for this very purpose, that he was going to meet with adversity and trial and persecution. This was not a miscalculation. It was not an accident. Jesus was not taken off, off guard by this whole thing. He came for this very purpose. You see, because the typical Jewish conception was they were waiting for the reigning lion of the tribe of Judah. But they had failed to understand that that same lion would also be a lamb. One who would be slaughtered on our behalf. The disciples here seem too dense to comprehend Jesus' meanings. Jesus, though, was not speaking in metaphors, right? I mean, how much more plain could this be? There's a lot of that Jesus speaks in parable, right? It's so funny to me. It seems like every time that Jesus speaks in parable, people take him literally. And every time he speaks literally, people think that he must be speaking in some figurative, crazy language they can't understand. I don't know how much more straightforward he could be. I'm going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered over. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be condemned. I'm going to be crucified. And the third day, I'm going to rise again. Luke reports, though, that they understood none of these things. And the sayings were hid from him. Neither knew they the things that were being spoken. I wonder why. Why couldn't they just hear this? Why couldn't they take this in? Why couldn't they understand what Jesus was saying? I mean, obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty. For us, we look at this and go, duh. I mean, how much more clear could it be? But meanwhile, here they are and they can't get it. I wonder if part of their failure here was a failure to listen at all. Have you ever listened to someone before and not really listened to them? Have you ever listened to someone before and the whole time you were thinking about something you wanted to say and therefore missed everything that they said? Have you ever listened to someone before and were thinking about something else the whole time? Certainly not now while I'm preaching. Right? But, but have we ever done that before? Where we thought about something else while they're talking about something and therefore missed the entire thing of what they were saying at that moment. I think that could be what's going on here on this occasion. But then the question comes up, well, what was capturing their attention? Well, I believe the ensuing dialogue gives us a clue as to what's going on. What were the disciples thinking about? They were still thinking about that whole rewards discussion that they had. And here come James and John with the question. And they're not alone, are they? James and John bring their mom along. We've got the heavy hitters now ready to talk to Jesus. A lot of people ask, why do they bring mom along? There's been a lot of discussion regarding the relationship between James and John and Jesus and their mother. It's believed by many that James and John's mother was Salome, who is the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother, which would make her Jesus' aunt, and therefore James and John cousins of Jesus. It's possible that what we've got going on here is a little politically political maneuvering. Right? Let's bring in aunt. And let's have her talk to Jesus. And let's sit there as cousins and talk to Jesus. And let's argue through our family and friends for our own advantage. Kind of goes back to the whole, it's not what you know, but 
who you know, right? So let's make use of that and let's use it as a tactic to get to Jesus. Now, you can imagine as their minds are kind of chunking through this whole thing and Jesus starts talking about all these other things. They are not listening to what he's saying. Instead, they're thinking, are we ready? Is this the moment? Are we going to be able to approach him and get our place on his right and his left? It's interesting the way this question comes. They come asking for a blank check. Have you ever had a kid do that for you, parents? Can you do something for me, Daddy? You don't just say yes, right? You say, well, what is it? And similarly here, Jesus does the same. It's like they're asking for a blank check. Jesus, will you do for us whatever we ask? Whatever we ask, will you just do it for us, Jesus? Will you just say yes to that? Because we know if we got you yes there, then we're going to get what we got coming. Jesus sees through all of this. Kind of reminds me of the foolishness of Herod. Remember, Herod makes a rash vow, ends up having to behead John the Baptist as a result of having promised um, that he would do anything for this girl. So, here we go. We see Jesus seeing right through this. And so he asks a counter question. What do you want me to do for you? Interesting. Jesus already reading into what's going on here. They don't just have a general question. They, they want something very in particular. And they want it for themselves. What do you want me to do for you? Remember, Jesus had just spoken on the promise that his disciples would sit with him in the coming kingdom. He mentioned that in Matthew 19. So James and John now are thinking, okay, we're going to be sitting in the kingdom. Which seats do we watch? Well, we want the seats of prominence. We want to be right next to Jesus. Now, we are also familiar in Jesus' ministry that the three of those disciples that were around Jesus a lot, right? Peter, James, and John, right? I wonder how Peter's feeling on this whole thing. Here's James and John saying, hey, we want to be your right and your left-hand men in the coming kingdom. It's crazy to see that these brothers are vying for self-promotion. And while they're doing it, what has Jesus just gotten done saying? He just got done talking about self-denial. He's come to lay down his life. And simultaneously, while he's talking about that, the brothers are so consumed in their minds of thinking about, where am I going to be positioned? They have selfish ambition driving them forward. And as a result, they're ignorant of what Jesus is saying. Jesus' words to them is lost on them because their minds are so consumed with another consideration. I wonder how often we are those people consumed with another consideration and as a result, missing out on what God has to say to us. Jesus responds with such patience. He says, you don't know what you're asking for. You don't know what you're asking for. You see, Jesus would be king, yes, but His kingship would come through the road of suffering. Jesus points out that they misunderstood the road that leads to the goal. And while it may be commendable that these men recognize rightly that Jesus will be enthroned, and they rightly understand that His kingdom is coming... They fail to recognize that the present has enough of its own trials and difficulties to deal with. And they need to stop vying for their own selfish position. It's almost as if the question might become, come up here. Does your present warfare allow you so much leisure that you're able to begin jockeying for position in the coming triumphal procession? You know, it's like as if we're out in the middle of war. And all of a sudden, one of the soldiers is there, and he comes back to the general and goes, Hey, when this is all over, can I have a better seat in the coming parade? The general will say, 
get back out there. It's not time to even discuss this. Here, disciples are jockeying for position. It's a classic case as well. The, that selfish ambition shows itself in ignorance. They don't even know what they're asking for. They're not listening to what Jesus has to say. And they don't even know what comes with the request they're asking. Jesus rejects the request. And in his wisdom, he doesn't grant these men their ignorance nor does He honor the motive behind their request. But this is such a great picture of what selfish ambition does. Often it's a display in misguided ignorance. And it's an effort in futility. But there's another thing that we see here. Not only ignorance, but presumption. You see, when Jesus asks whether John and James are able to drink His cup and be baptized in His baptism, they instantly reply, yes, we're able. We're up to the task. We can do it. They affirm that they're able to do what Jesus is asking before even knowing what it is. They don't even ask for clarification. What does it mean to drink your cup? What does it mean to have your baptism? They're just saying, yes, we're ready. We can do it. Their ignorance has led them to a presumptuous statement and assertion. Beware of making rash oaths. Oftentimes, what you'll see is a rational comes from ignorance and a self-inflated ego. Right? Someone who's prideful and arrogant and ignorant is ripe for rash oaths. Making promises you can't fulfill. Saying you can do things that you can't. I mean, did they believe that the cup that Jesus was referring to was a cup of blessing? Perhaps. There are references in the Old Testament that refer to a cup as being a cup flowing over or a cup full, full of good things, a blessing. Maybe they just assume that's what Jesus is talking about. However, there are far greater numbers of references to cup being a reference to wrath and judgment and difficulty and trial. James and John lack understanding. They certainly don't lack courage or loyalty, or at least seeming loyalty or courage. But they say they're ready to drink His cup and to have His baptism. Jesus tells them, well, you actually will drink My cup and you will be baptized with My baptism. Think about James and John and their own life. You know, James is the first recorded martyr, right? After Stephen. And we see that John is exiled to the island of Patmos as a result of serving the Lord. These men would see great suffering. But there's a whole lot of irony present here too. I mean, think about what Jesus has just gotten done saying. He's going to go to Jerusalem, be betrayed, be scourged, condemned, and crucified. Now, do they really want the positions on Jesus' right and left? Jesus would be hoisted up on a cross. And there would be two men, one on His right and one on His left. Do they know what they were really asking? Did they know what they were really getting themselves into? It's interesting that when Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and they have an opportunity to follow through on, yes, we'll drink the cup. Yes, we'll be your secret service. We'll be willing to take a bullet for you. What instead do they do? They run away. They run away. However, Jesus does say, you will travel my path and you will drink my cup and be baptized with my baptism. However, 
Jesus goes on to say, it's not my place to grant your positions in the coming kingdom. Because it's not going to be granted on the basis of personal ambition or political maneuvering or getting your mom to ask me. It's not going to happen that way. Because those positions have been prepared for by my Father and He'll be distributing those in their own time. We see ignorance. We see presumption. And the third thing we see is anger. We see anger present with selfish ambition. Look at verse 41. I mean, we might like to hope that selfish ambition has been contained. Okay, just get a handle on James and John, get them quieted down, and we'll be okay, and we'll push forward. But what happens as soon as this transpires? The rest of the disciples become, we're told, indignant. They become angry. They're mad. It demonstrates that they too are desiring those positions of honor with Jesus. No one is exempt from this area of coveting and jockeying for position in the coming kingdom. It's so tragic that here, Jesus' disciples, as they draw so near to Jesus' sacrifice, and Jesus has just gotten done talking about it, everything about the selflessness of Jesus is being highlighted, and simultaneously, what do we see in the disciples? Selfishness. Selfish ambition. And what is it doing among them? Exactly what James says. It's causing divisions and envy, and every evil sort of thing. This personal ambition is causing them to be splintered among one another. And they need their focus and attention redirected. Ever noticed that it's easy to identify the sin in others and so hard to see it in ourselves? And these guys are mad. Why? Because James and John are trying to maneuver themselves into right and left of Jesus. How dare they? Why are they so angry? Because they want it themselves. Ever know someone who goes, that person, I just can't stand them. They're so selfish. They always get their own way. Often that person at that moment is, don't like it because they themselves are selfish and they're not getting their way. We love identifying sin in others. We have a hard time seeing it in ourselves. Sometimes what we require is a Nathan to show us, thou art the man. You are that selfish individual just as much in need of the selfless sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your selfishness. Jesus makes good use, though, of this opportunity to really bring out this disease of heart. And that's what brings us to point number two this morning. We can, we can mourn the tragedy of selfish ambition, but now let's celebrate the triumph of selfless ambition. The triumph of selfless ambition. Second Corinthians 5.9 Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. What's our ambition? To be pleasing to Him. To be pleasing to Him. That's our ambition, whether at home or absent. To be pleasing to Him. I'm going to divide this into two subpoints. First, the message of selfless ambition. Jesus has a message for His disciples. And He draws a contrast here between world's ambition for greatness and His kingdom's ambition for greatness. What does that look like? There's ambition in both cases. There's an ambition. There's a drive. There's an esteem going on here. But there's a different definition of greatness. For Gentiles follow patterns of pushing others down to advance themselves. Promoting self at the expense of others. This world often defines greatness by the number of people you have working for you. The number of servants you have at your beck and call. The way in which you can use people 
to achieve your goals and your ends. That's how this world defines greatness. But contrary to this world system, Jesus explained that the path to true greatness is service. It's servanthood. It's slavery. Jesus explains a redirection of ambition is in order. He gathers his disciples together and he says, Listen, guys, you've got this all wrong. If you continue going the way you are, you're going to splinter apart into a thousand factions. He explains that a redirection of ambition is in order. They ought instead, he doesn't mind them being ambitious, but be ambitious for the right thing. Instead of being ambitious for their own place, they should be ambitious and great in serving. May their ambition drive them to great servanthood for the benefit of others and the glory of God. Because that's where true greatness is seen. But it seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? Isn't greatness seen in how many people serve you? Isn't prominence all about exercising authority over others? Yes, on this earth, that is how aspirations for prestige and power go. But it's not the way that way with Christ. And therefore, it must not be that way with those who follow Christ. William Barclay said it this way. The world may assess a man's greatness by the number of people whom he controls and who are at his beck and call, or by his intellectual standing and academic eminence, or by the number of committees to which he's a member, or by the size of his bank balance and the material possessions that he has amassed. But in the assessment of Jesus Christ, these things are irrelevant. You see, Christians are those who see life as a God-given opportunity to worship God and serve others. So every position of leadership is therefore to be viewed as an opportunity to lead in serving. The best leadership is that which is selfless and other-centered. In God's kingdom, the higher the rank, the more absolute the service. You know, the normal picture you get of hierarchical charts is the pyramid, right? With the person who's got the greatest authority at the top. Well, Jesus says, flip the pyramid on its head. The greatest is the one who serves the rest. The greatest is the one who holds the weaker. And there is no better example than looking to Jesus Himself. John 13, 13 and 14, He said this, You call Me Teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the Teacher, washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet. See it? If I am the greatest, the Lord and Teacher, and I wash your feet, you also ought to wash others' feet. You're right, I'm the greatest, but if I'm the greatest and what I do is serve, then you also ought to serve. Isn't it incredible that in Jesus' final moments on earth, we see Him providing these sorts of instructions to His disciples And He's not only giving them words, but He's giving them an example. He's giving them His very life. And He's backing it up with action. He washes His disciples' feet. He takes the lowest place in service to His followers. We're told even laying down His own life for the sheep. How much more ought we see our rightful place as one of service? What joy there is in serving one another and putting others' interests before our own. Interesting how the Lord will bring... Stuff I'm studying for for Sunday in conjunction with just life in general. Because of some budgeting issues here with our school, Mrs. Staggs and I, the administrative director, 
realized that there wasn't going to be any way for us to really do gifts for our teachers. And so Mrs. Staggs had the most wonderful idea that we do some acts of service around campus. And I'll just say this. I share this for this reason. The Lord taught me so much through that. You never ask to be in financial hardship. You never ask for that, right? But how many things has God taught us in the midst of that? How often has he caused us to think about what's really important and what's really valuable? And over this past couple of weeks, I found such joy in experiencing the job that all the employees here at the school do for us every day of the week. And what insight that gave to me into the work that they do in an ongoing fashion and keeping this place going and doing such an excellent job at it. I'm thankful for the way in which the Lord will teach us all, myself included. I need this lesson in an ongoing fashion. Those who lead must lead in serving. They must learn what it means to serve. Otherwise, they ought to step out of leadership. Jesus gives us not only a message of selfless ambition, but He models it. And He models it beyond modelability, right? His model is perfect. And instead of following this world's model, we need to follow the model of our Savior's service. It's a how much more sort of argument, His model of selfless ambition. It's a how much more sort of argument. If Jesus, who is chief, came to serve, how much more ought we? And then if that, as if that wasn't enough, Jesus didn't even come merely just to serve, but He came to give His life as a ransom for many. 1 John 3.16 We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. I like this definition of service. Service is love made tangible. Service is love made tangible. And how incredible that Jesus, the all-glorious one, should become incarnate and be born unto us for the purpose not to be served, but to serve. If there was anyone who ought to have been served hand and foot at the at beck and call for his entire earthly ministry, it's Jesus. Yet he flips it all on its head. And he comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Having been freed by his grace and through his death and resurrection, we who are Christians owe everything to the Lord. We're free from the evil slavery to sin. We're granted a noble service in God's kingdom. And while we can't ever serve precisely as Jesus did, for we still struggle with sin in this life, and his life, death, and resurrection are unique events. However, we can grow in relationship with Jesus. And as we do, we will long to be more like him and follow him, counting greatness not as the number of people who serve us, but the number of people we have been granted the privilege of serving. Flipping that around. This is at least the third recorded occasion in which Jesus tells his disciples about his coming death. And it is the most descriptive of all of his prophetic statements regarding what's going to happen. He says, the Son of Man will, betray, will be betrayed. You see that happen in Mark 14, 41 through 45. He'll be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes. Mark 14, 53 and following. He'll, they will condemn, condemn him to death. Mark 14, 64. They'll hand him over to the Gentiles. Mark 15, verse 1 and 10. Who will mock him. 
Mark 15, verses 29 and 30. They will spit on him and flog him. Mark 14, 65. Mark 15, 15 through 20. And kill him. Mark 15, 20 through 39. And three days later, he will rise again. Mark 16, 1 through 8. All of the things that Jesus forecast happened exactly as he said they would. And all of those things happened in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The sacrifice that we needed had to cover not only our nakedness, but our sin and our guilt and our shame. So when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and they went and covered themselves, they could cover their nakedness on a temporal level, but they couldn't cover their guilt. They couldn't cover their sin. And so there needed to be a greater sacrifice. There needed to be a greater covering. They could cover our sin and our guilt and our shame and put us on right terms with our Father. And the sacrifice that was necessary must have been provided by God Himself because the blood of goats and calves could never really truly cover our sins. They could picture our need for a substitute, but they couldn't actually be our substitute. So we needed something greater than any animal could ever give. And this is further understood by the requirements of the sacrifice. The sacrifice must be spotless and blemishless needed to be able to stand in our place as our substitute. Therefore, it must be man. But it also must be perfect, sinless, and not deserving of death itself. And willingly lay down its life on behalf of others, not have it required because it sinned. And therefore, it must be God. What we needed was a God-man. What we needed was God's own Son, the incarnate Word of God. And Jesus would come. He would come as a baby. And He would grow up. He would increase in wisdom and stature with man. And He would endure the deepest sort of suffering. Everyone talks about crucifixion and the horrors associated with crucifixion. And I don't mean to lessen that at all. The Romans used crucifixion on purpose because it was so torturous. It was horrid. It was awful. However, the pain that Jesus encountered extended beyond just the physical pains that attended His death. He experienced the pain of rejection by the Jews. He came to His own and His own rejected Him. He encountered the pain of betrayal by a close companion. One of His own disciples betrays Him. And not only betrays Him, but betrays Him with a kiss. He endured the unjust condemnation by the Sanhedrin. They fabricate their lies and attempt to get something on Jesus for which they can't. And so they finally end up condemning Him for what He was. They condemn him because he claimed to be God. But he was God. Then he encounters the cowardly acquiescence of the Romans who won't stand up and just obviously see that this case should be thrown out of court but instead they just go along with it to save their own face for fear that maybe they'll be reported to the emperor. So they go along with this horrible plot. And then the humiliation by the Gentiles. Jesus is spit on. They mock him. They make a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They put a purple robe on his back. They whip him. They scorch him. They, they make comments. They mock. If you're really the come on down off the cross. Can't even save himself. And then on top of all of that, there upon the cross, Jesus lost that perfect fellowship that He had with God the Father for all eternity. As we're told, God His Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. And as a result, God the Father would pour out all of His holy wrath and anger upon His Son. 
so that his justice could be served. And there's a weightiness to that moment that defies our ability to describe and to really get our hands around. What does it mean for God the Son to be forsaken of God the Father? How is that even possible? How does that, how does that, there's a reality there that goes beyond our comprehension. And yet this is what Jesus did. He suffered all of this. But it wouldn't be the final note in the symphony. Yes, there would be dark moments. And yes, this is seemingly the darkest moment of all. But even in the midst of such evil, God was at work. Bringing to pass a glorious result. One that we would have never even imagined. He wouldn't allow His Son to suffer decay but rose Him up from the dead on the third day. Thereby Jesus conquered not only sin, but He conquered its penalty, death. You see, the Prince of Life did battle with death and vanquished it. The Prince of Life killed death. And He did this in perfect submission to God the Father's plan to redeem the people of every tribe, tongue, and nation for His glory and for His renown. Because while God would have been perfectly just to have sent us all to hell, we all deserve it, God also wants to make a marvelous display of the magnanimous riches of His grace and mercy and love. And therefore, He sent His Son, who was, as we sang, Lord at His birth. Because He's been Lord from eternity, and He'll always be. You see, while Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, He came into this world as a servant he said in Luke 22, Who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You see, the disciples still envisioned their entrance into Jerusalem as a triumph march to Jesus' rightful throne as king. But Jesus was moving to Jerusalem to be rejected, betrayed, handed over, insulted, scourged, and crucified. Jesus went into Jerusalem with singular purpose to fulfill His Father's will as the servant of the Lord, laying down His life that He might redeem sinners for His Father's possession. And what happens? Jesus is handed over to the Gentiles. It's an interesting phrase. Be handed over to the nations. Handed over to the ethne. Handed over to the Gentiles. He's handed over to them, ultimately, for the purpose of saving them. He is betrayed that we might be accepted. Redemption is accomplished through the unexpected means of a suffering servant. As Isaiah 53 says, salvation is accomplished by Jesus bearing our sin and guilt and laying down His life to satisfy God's justice. Jesus' declaration here proves that the coming conflict resulting in Jesus' death was not a setback to His mission, but it was the very triumph of His submission to His Father and His mission to save mankind. Jesus' death was the result of His own free, deliberate choice to make the needful payment to reconcile God and man. And when Jesus died, He bore our sins in His own body on the tree. When He suffered, He suffered for us. When He offered up Himself, He did so for lost, rebellious sinners. And when His blood poured out, it poured out to pay our debt. He died to pay the full ransom that sinners might go free. Revelation 5.9 They sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men of every tribe and tongue and people and nation.
It wouldn't be all that much longer before the disciples would see what Jesus was getting at. They didn't get it then, but they would see in due time. After Jesus was crucified and then rose again, I know the Holy Spirit brought these things back to their minds. I'm sure they had moments where they talked to one another. Do you remember when Jesus said this to us? You see, this moment that seems like the greatest tragedy was actually the greatest triumph as our God and King conquered sin in the grave. The Apostle Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would summarize Jesus' words in this way. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he exists in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, as we gaze upon Jesus, we will live then in awe of Him. If we'll esteem Him rightly, and then, as a result, we will make it our ambition to be pleasing to Him. Because ultimately, the only life worth living is the one that's lived for Him who's worth living for. And that's Jesus. Let's pray in His name. Father, we come before You in the name of Jesus Christ. He was Lord at His birth because He's Lord for all eternity. We're thankful that He was first, took up the last spot, came to the lowest humility, emptied Himself, humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Father, You have raised Him and You have exalted Him and seated Him at the highest pinnacle. Such a gift is just too deep for words. And yet we find ourselves stumbling about trying to express our gratitude and thankfulness to You finding ourselves so often failing to even do an appropriate job of that. Thank You for Your grace which covers our sin. Thank You for the sacrifice of Jesus. Thank You for the gift of this baby who came to serve and to die and to rise again. May this celebration of Christmas as it's right here upon us, as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, may we not forget Your glory. May we not forget the glorious sacrifice that Jesus has made on our behalf. We thank You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.